Mark chapter 12 in your copies of God's Word this morning, please. Mark chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find a Bible, a church Bible, near you in the hymnal rack of the pew in front of you, or if you're sitting in the front row of a section, you'll find that in the hymnal rack beneath you. It's page 1008 in the church Bible. It's so important that you see with your own eyes what we'll be talking about this morning from Mark chapter 12. Um, For those of you who are brand new with us, you don't know that for the last two weeks I have not been preaching on Sunday mornings. I want to thank our church family for your prayers on our behalf as we traveled to Alabama to be a part of the wedding of our son Noah. We're so thankful to the Lord for he... His goodness in gifting us with a daughter who loves Jesus and is committed to serving Jesus as a pastor's wife for Noah and with Noah. Thanks to pastors Josh and Brandon for preaching in my absence. And I knew, I knew and I anticipated this the whole time we were gone, that when I got back, I would get to preach to you on one of my favorite topics, and that's heaven. I love preaching about heaven. Do you love hearing preaching about heaven? The longer I live in this sin-cursed world, the more I love heaven. That joy-packed eternity that awaits every believer in Jesus. But the only way that that joy-packed eternity can really be a joy-packed eternity is if the grave doesn't have the last word with our body. Fullness of joy, listen carefully, fullness of joy is not possible as humans unless our body is resurrected and then perfected to fully enjoy eternity physically. It's such a mind-blowing thing that 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9 says that eye has not seen and ear has not heard and the heart of man has not imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Wow. You can't even begin to imagine it. Even when we hear it, we, we don't understand it. And yet my aim today is to in some way, shape, or form, with the Spirit's help and with the Word of God as our our guide to help you grasp a bit more of the eternal glory that is coming. And so we're going to do that on this Father's Day from Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 18, as we've been following Jesus through His life, through His ministry, throughout the Gospel of Mark as He lives His life on purpose for us, and He is now just a few days away from fulfilling that purpose through His cross And through his resurrection, let's pick up the text in verse 18 of Mark chapter 12. And Sadducees came to him. And they say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, that man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven did the same, and they left no offspring. And then last of all, the woman also died. So in the resurrection, which, by the way, we don't believe in, it's Adjaces are saying, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, 
Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to Moses saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is the word of our God for us this morning. I'll never forget the day. I was making a hospital visit down in southern Illinois. And as I was walking through the emergency room, I noticed that the waiting area was just teeming with people. There was a lady there with a bloody nose. There was a child there with a broken ankle. And there were many people there experiencing flu-like symptoms. They were all waiting their turn to see a doctor. When suddenly a man came running through the ER doors crying out, please, please help me. Please, my wife is having a stroke. And immediately as if they were coming out of the woodwork, there were 20 healthcare professionals arriving on scene within seconds. Why? It was quite an amazing sight. Why with all of these Sick people, all these needy people, all these people waiting to see one doctor. Why, why did this one woman get immediate attention and all the attention? It's because her situation was most urgent and most critical. It was life and death. Now, it wasn't that the nosebleed and the broken ankle and the flu were unimportant. They needed to be treated. It's that the stroke was the most important. That's what we refer to as triage. The ER is not a first-come, first-served place. The ER is a most critical to least critical place, a most urgent to least urgent place. But triage isn't something that's relegated to hospital ERs because each of us is triaging life each and every day. We are discerning what is most urgent and what is most critical in everyday life. And that's really what this scene in Mark chapter 12 is all about. You see, we all struggle with a tendency to let the temporary and the trivial displace the eternal. For the less important to overshadow the most important. For the things of this world that we can see to displace the things of the world to come that we cannot see. And dads, dads on this Father's Day... I would propose that we face that temptation to a greater degree than everyone else in this room. The temptation to allow the cares of this world, the, the pursuits in this life, the, the house, the car, the yard, the career, the 401k, the hobbies, we, to allow those things to become the main things. But they aren't. They never will be. And not because those things are unimportant, 
but because something else is most important, and that's eternity with Jesus. Do you believe that? Dads, you believe that? Dads, are you living that? Dads, are you leaving that legacy to those who are coming behind you? It's been said that there are only two sure things in life. What are they? Come on now, talk to me. (laughs) Death and as residents of the great state of Illinois, a lot of taxes, all right? Certain death and a whole lot of taxes. That's not true. There are actually three things that are sure in life. Death, taxes, and the resurrection. Because the grave won't be the end of our story. Resurrection will be for everyone in this room. There is coming a day when every dead body will be brought back to life and reunited with that soul to experience death in hell forever or life in heaven forever. And that's why the big idea of this scene in Mark chapter 12 is that there is a resurrection coming, so keep your focus on the eternal. Dads, don't be distracted by the lesser stuff in life, the stuff that isn't going to matter forever because it's not going to matter next week or next month or next year. That's what these Sadducees are doing right here. They're all about the trivial while ignoring the critical because they're denying the eternal. Now, for us to really get how powerful a scene this is, we need to know that all of this goes down on Tuesday of the Passion Week. Jesus is three days from the cross. He is staring death in the face. And so when this question is posed to him by the Sadducees, I believe he is beginning to feel the reality of what he is talking about. He's beginning to feel the reality of his soon-to-come death. He's in the temple. He's doing a walk and talk with the people there. And because it's Passover week, the temple is busting at the seams. Now, there's something you need to know about Passover week and how Rome responds to Passover week. There are more than two and a half million people who are descending upon Jerusalem during this week, and Rome is always then on a heightened alert during Passover week. They're always thinking if there's going to be a revolution, it's going to happen during Passover week. You say, Pastor Ken, why are you telling us that? Well, here's why. This is the perfect opportunity for the Jewish religious leaders to get the attention of Rome and to trap Jesus in his words and to take Jesus down. So the religious leaders are waiting for Jesus to say something that will simultaneously tick off Rome and the Jewish people. And this is the perfect time. This is the perfect place. And so these Jewish religious leaders, they're shooting rapid-fire questions at Jesus. It's been the chief priests and the scribes and the elders back in chapter 11. It's been the Pharisees and the Herodians earlier in chapter 2. And now it's the Sadducees who show up. You say, well, who are the Sadducees? I'm so glad you asked because I have it in my notes here. The Sadducees are a group of rabbis who were a part of the religious aristocracy 
that we refer to as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is a group of 71 religious men, holy men, who really serve as the religious senate of Israel. And they're highly influential. They're influential religiously, they're influential societally, they're influential politically. Now, King Herod, who is king over Israel, may appear to be the political head in the land, but the Sanhedrin is the neck that turns the head. They are the real power brokers in Israel, and the Sadducees are a part of this group, even though the Sadducees are the theological liberals in this group. The Pharisees actually are the theological conservatives, not because they believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but because they, they accept the entire Old Testament as being inspired by God. The Sadducees don't. The Sadducees don't accept the entire Old Testament as being inspired by God. They accept only the Torah as Scripture. The first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy, because Moses is their man. They've got posters of Moses hanging on their bedroom wall. They've got replicas of Moses' chariot sitting on their nightstand. They are all about Moses and only about Moses. And so when it comes to the Old Testament, if Moses didn't say it or write it, they don't believe it. And there's an application here for us. You see, when we begin picking and choosing what parts of God's Word we're going to believe, it's going to radically affect everything about us, including what we believe about life and death and heaven and hell. You don't believe me? Here's an assignment for you this afternoon. Go home and get on Twitter and look up deconstruction. Look up progressive Christianity and just read or watch or listen. When we begin picking and choosing what in God's Word we're going to believe and not believe, it has radical implications for what we believe about life and death and heaven and hell. That's the Sadducees. They do not believe in a future resurrection. They don't believe in eternal life. Their mantra is, you live and you die, and that's the end. A resurrection in the future where, 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 where the body is re, somehow reunited with the soul, that's also supernatural. It's also spooky. There are so many unanswerable questions with all of that, which is why they come to Jesus and pose this question. So Jesus... Moses, our man, wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, that man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So Jesus, you, you understand what we're saying here. You, do you get what we're referring to here? It's what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 25 about Leveret marriage. Now, the word leveret is a, a word taken from the Hebrew that means brother-in-law. Well, of course Jesus knows what they're talking about. Jesus knows the Scriptures inside and out. But let's just make sure that we know what they're talking about when they're talking about leveret marriage. Because according to Old Testament Jewish law, when a husband dies and leaves his wife without a son, then that husband's brother is to marry the widow. 
And when the Lord then gives this, this husband, new husband and wife a son, that second husband will raise the son in the name of his deceased brother. Now, if you're familiar with your Bible, you'll know that that leveret marriage is really what the story of Ruth in the Old Testament revolves around. Because Ruth's husband dies. And Ruth's brother-in-law dies. And so there's no one, there's no one in the immediate family to marry Ruth and to care for her, which is when the hero of the story, Boaz, comes riding in as a knight in shining armor, and he rescues her, and he redeems her, and he loves her, and he marries her, and that's a big deal in the overall story of Scripture, because Ruth, through Boaz, becomes the great-grandmother of King David and an ancestor to our Lord Jesus. Christ. It's an amazing story. And it all kind of revolves around this issue of leveret marriage. Now, I'm leaving out a whole lot of the details, and there's a reason for that, because Lord willing, when we are done with Mark's gospel, we're going to Ruth's story on Sunday mornings. All right, I figured I'd get at least one amen from the ladies. All right, so um, back to the Sadducees' question. Because they're probably wondering, okay, Jesus, you still with us here? Because this woman loses her first husband without having a son, and so his brother marries her and dies, and so does brother number three and four and five and six and seven. And the woman is still childless, and then she dies. So Jesus, she's had seven husbands. Do you see how ludicrous a resurrection would be? Do you see the unanswerable questions and the conundrums that it would provide? Because in heaven, in eternity, whose wife is she going to be? Which one of these seven husbands? Well, it's, a, it's an obviously loaded question because it's being asked by these guys who don't even believe in a resurrection. They're intending to make, you know, this sounds so absurd and preposterous. And you know how they're doing it? Just look at their question again. They're focusing on the trivial rather than the eternal. Now, I have a confession to make, and I, I really debated whether or not to share this with you because those of you who know me now in my humility... I heard a couple of chuckles there. In my humility, you will find this hard to believe, but I haven't always been this humble. I was, I was a 19-year-old college freshman once, and I've asked a, a question like this one. I was home on Christmas break after my freshman year of Bible college, and my dad was wrapping up a Wednesday night study on Genesis so he was concluding that study with a question and answer time on this specific Wednesday night. And I thought, you know, <clears throat> here's my chance to strut my stuff. Having been away at Bible college for an entire semester, I'll dazzle my home church with my theological prowess. I'll ask Dad a question about Genesis that he cannot answer. And so I raised my hand and Dad called on me. And I said, Dad, who are the sons of God and the daughters of men in Genesis chapter 6? You say, Pastor Ken, you just lost me. Now, now listen, all you really need to know about that is that there is not a concrete answer to that question. It's really an unanswerable question, and I knew that. 
And I still remember the look on Dad's face as he was in the front of the auditorium. The look on his face was like, I'm going to crush the pride right out of you, right here in front of everybody. And so he said, Kenneth, that's such a great question. Why don't you ask your theology professor at Bible college? Because if you would have listened in class, you wouldn't need to ask me that question. <laughs> I've never asked Dad another question. Dad was telling me in so many words to stop being a Sadducee. Stop being consumed with the trivial rather than the eternal. Listen, there are some stuff in the Bible that's hard to understand. There's some stuff in the Scriptures that we won't have the answer to until we're with Jesus in eternity. And the enemy would love for us to focus on the stuff that is trivial, for us to major on the minors. And the way that we fight that temptation is to passionately pursue what God has clearly revealed in His Word. He has clearly revealed about the resurrection. It's what Pastor Alistair Begg often says, in the Bible, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And it's what God says himself in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed in his word belong to us and to our children forever. Dads, make that your mantra. What God has revealed in his word belongs to us and to our children forever. Why? So that we may do what God has clearly revealed. The Sadducees are all about the trivial. And here's the thing, when you're all about the trivial, you won't be about the eternal. And that's evident in just how absurd their question really is, because after the third or fourth brother marries this woman and then dies, do you think the other remaining brothers would have been asking, okay, which of us wants to die next? I mean, this woman must have been some woman. I mean, then think about this question because it's the kind of question that's intended to get under Jesus' skin, to rattle him, to exasperate him. I mean, just look at look how, how long this question is in the biblical text. It takes Mark five verses to summarize their question. Now, let me ask you. Is Mark usually a guy who's fast-paced and moving from scene to scene, whose favorite word in his gospel is immediately... Yes, and yet it takes him five whole verses just to summarize their question, which means that this question is one of those 10-minute questions. They're just dragging it out. Now, listen, we all know people like this, you know, the kind of people that it takes them five minutes just to say hi to you. That's these Sadducees, they're attempting to exasperate and rattle Jesus. But I tell you, friends, our Jesus cannot be rattled. He spent 40 days fasting in the wilderness, being tempted by the devil. He's been confronted by demon, demons. He's had his own family come and get him, calling him mad, taking, wanting to take him home to get him some help. 
He's been told several times to leave several towns. He's slept through a storm in the back of the boat, and he's walked through another storm on the water. He's been interrupted, interrogated, and investigated, and each time he's in complete control of his emotions. He's unshakable and unbreakable and unflappable. This is our Jesus. And so... Jesus answers the question that's intended to rattle him. He answers their question calmly, but bluntly. And he says, guys, you are wrong, dead wrong. I want you to notice that he doesn't just lead with that in verse 24. He closes with that in verse 27. You guys have totally missed the point about the resurrection and eternal life. You know why? Because you don't know the Scriptures. And because you don't know the Scriptures, you don't know the power of God. But I'll play along with your story. I'll play along with your scenario. Because it isn't really about one bride for seven brothers. And it isn't about if they rise from the dead. It's about when they rise from the dead. Because a future resurrection isn't just some possibility. It's a reality. And in that resurrection, that bride won't be married to any of those seven brothers. Because in heaven, there is no marrying nor giving in marriage. Now, I love being married to Joanna. And I warned her that she was going to be a part of the sermon this morning. I love being married to Joanna, and she loves being married to me. Right? I just, I just want to make sure about this. I want to speak the truth, all right? Um, and there's no better way to get the truth out of her than to put her on the spot in front of everybody. Um, I love Joanna. She loves me. I love doing life with her. I think she loves doing life with me. But in heaven, I won't be married to her. I won't be her husband, and she won't be my wife. And for those of us who have been happily married... The thought of eternity without marriage to our spouse may trouble us. And so I want to be very pastoral here this morning, and I want to answer a few questions that I've been asked down through the years. I don't have much time to unpack all of this, but I'm going to give it a shot, okay? The first question is, why won't there be marriage in heaven when marriage can be so fulfilling and joy-producing here on earth? Well, there will be no marriage in heaven because there will be no procreation in heaven. So, no gender reveal parties in heaven, no baby showers in heaven. There's no need to populate heaven because there will be no funerals in heaven. Amen? No funerals in heaven. And that's because Jesus says here that we'll be like the angels in heaven. Now, please listen carefully to what Jesus says. Jesus does not say here that we will be angels in heaven. That is a common misconception in our world today that when people die and go to heaven, they become angels. Jesus is not saying that here. So don't get your, your theology from the great movie, It's a Wonderful Life. We're not going to be the angel Clarence and sprout wings in heaven, right? So every time a bell rings, an angel isn't getting his wings, but we will be like the angels in heaven because we won't be reproducing or dying. 
But there is something about the husband-wife relationship here on earth that will carry over into heaven. Another question I've been asked is, what will our relationships be like in heaven, especially my relationship with my spouse? We will recognize and know one another in heaven. So when I bump into Joanna one day in heaven on the golden streets there, I won't say, hey, you know, um, you look familiar. Uh, do I know you from somewhere? You know, I just can't put a name with the face. Uh, did I know you in a previous world, in a previous life? No. I'll know her, and I'll know her not just as somebody I was acquainted with on earth. I'll know that she was my wife on earth. The relationship there will be closer than it is here, even though we won't be married in heaven. I will know her more intimately, love her more intensely, delight in her more fully. You say, but PK, where are you getting that from this text? Well, it isn't necessarily in this text, but I think I can show you from the Bible in two different texts how I know that. Do you remember when King David's baby boy son dies. Remember when he dies? It's back in 2 Samuel chapter 12, and David says what? He can't come to me, but I will go to him. David is looking forward to the day when he is reunited with his son in eternity. And the only way that that can truly be a comfort to David in the midst of losing his baby son is if David is going to have an ongoing, living relationship with his son that he will know his son in eternity and for eternity. And then... In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul tells us that when we lose loved ones who know Jesus, we are not to sorrow as others who have no hope because God will, when Jesus returns, God will bring with Jesus those who sleep in Jesus, those who've died in Jesus. And so Paul comforts us in that text in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 by saying that we will see our loved ones again. And the only way that can be a comfort is if we will recognize them and know them and have an ongoing relationship with them for eternity. Listen, we cannot know less in heaven than we did on earth. And so we will know there those whom we know here. And we will be closest to those there that we are closest to here, including our spouse. And so I'm sure that makes Joanna happy this morning. And then thirdly, when Jesus returns, the bodies of those who've died in Jesus will be resurrected and reunited with their soul that's been in heaven with Jesus. One of, the, one of the questions I've been asked down through the years is what will our resurrected bodies, our resurrection bodies be like? They will be new, brand new. They will be like Christ's glorified body, which means no sickness, no cancer, no dementia, no diabetes. These bodies, these new bodies, won't be like this body. These, these new bodies, you'll never tear an ACL or a meniscus. 
These new bodies that will be given, they will never wear out or wear down. And the older I get, the more I'm looking forward to that. There'll be no sickness. There'll be no weariness. No one will ever fall asleep in a church service in heaven. (laughs) And there will be no sinfulness. These bodies that crave sin, they'll be changed. And instead, will eternally crave holiness. And we'll have it. It's Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. But our citizenship, guys, this is for us. This world is not your home. We're just a passing through. Because our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly, sin-cursed body to be like His glorious, perfected body. How? Here's what the Sadducees didn't get. By the power of Him. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Listen, a resurrection is coming for us. It will happen. I don't know all the ins and outs of that resurrection, but I do know that there will be a wedding in heaven when the church, the bride of Christ, will be united forever in marriage to Jesus, the bridegroom. And Revelation 19 tells us that that wedding will be followed by the greatest feast this universe has ever seen. And what a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. But the Sadducees don't believe any of that. And that's why they're sad, you see. Okay. Sorry, I had to throw that in just to see if you were still awake. But seriously, Jesus concludes his answer to the Sadducees by saying, Okay, guys, I know that you are Moses' fanboys. I know he's your man. So you should know that when God spoke to Moses out of the burning bush back in Exodus chapter 3, you should know what God said. You should know that God said, I am Moses. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So guys, did you just catch the verb tense that God uses? God doesn't say to Moses out of that burning bush, I was the God of Abraham, I was the God of Isaac, I was the God of Jacob. Listen, all three of those guys are dead guys by the time Moses arrives on scene. All three of those guys, their bodies are rotting in a grave And yet God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. He has an ongoing living relationship with them, even though their bodies are dead and buried. Their souls are alive in the presence of God, awaiting the resurrection that God will bring. And that's why God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. And so the grave won't have the final word with us. The resurrection will. And that's why King David writes in Psalm 16, verse 11, you make known to me, not the path of death, you make known to me the path of life, God. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you believe that? 
Is this the future that awaits you? I need to ask you that personally this morning. What will your eternity look like? Will it look like the forever joys of eternal life? Or will it look like the eternal remorse and regret of eternal death? See, Jesus came. Jesus is here on this Tuesday of Passion Week in the temple answering this preposterous question from the Sadducees because he came to live the perfect life that we couldn't, to die the death that we deserve. He came to give his life as a ransom for many and to go to a cross and to die. The sustainer of life, the creator of life, dies to give us life. That's the only way. It's John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That's why Jesus dies. It's 1 Peter 3, verse 18. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous in the place of me, the unrighteous, so that he might bring me to God. Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus is the only way to eternal life. And that's why John 3, verse 36 says, whoever believes in the Son has life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus steps between us and the wrath of God that we deserve with our sin. And he takes that wrath and he absorbs that wrath in full. And he then, when we trust him, he frees us from that wrath and replaces that wrath and death with life and joy forever. Is that your forever? Will you come to Jesus? Will you trust in Jesus? Will you embrace Jesus? By grace alone, through faith alone, in him alone. Because the Bible says, if you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Come to Jesus. And when you do, trusting in him for eternal life, then there are two takeaways here for us as followers of Jesus, especially for us men as dads here on Father's Day. First, beware the tyranny of the trivial. Beware the tyranny of the trivial. You could also put in there the temporary. You know, we hear a lot about the tyranny of the urgent, but not so much about the tyranny of the trivial. And yet every moment of every day, we are being bombarded by the trivial and the temporary with stuff that isn't going to matter a thousand years from now or even a hundred years from now or even ten years from now. I mean, let me ask you, who won the Super Bowl championship in 2012? Who won the NBA championship in 2018? Who won the World Series in 2016? Oh, come on. You got, I knew you would know that one. The only reason you know that is because it was 108 years, right, since the Cubs had won the World Series until 2016. But you know, in 30 years, nobody's going to remember. And yet, how much of our time is spent on the ESPN app or watching SportsCenter 
or on our Twitter feed or checking our 401k balance. You know, so much of our our life is like a game of Monopoly. When you push away from the table and you're done playing the game of Monopoly, what happens? It all goes back in the box. It doesn't matter how much you had. It doesn't matter if you were wealthy and had boardwalk or you were stuck with the lowly Marvin Gardens. It all goes back in the box. You just dump it back in. Dads, how much of our life is going back in the box? Are we spending so much time at work or pursuing a hobby or building a retirement fund that it's affecting our ability to love our wife well and lead our children well and serve Jesus in the church well? Does how we spend our time and money reflect that we get the fact that I've got only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ? will last. Men, are we Matthew 6, verse 33 kind of men? We are seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And when we do, He'll take care of the small stuff, the trivial stuff, the everyday kind of needs stuff, because He promises that when you seek first my kingdom and righteousness, all these things will be added to you. So beware the tyranny of the trivial. And secondly, live all out for the eternal. Live all out for the eternal. Do what the Sadducees don't. Get to know the Scriptures because it's here in the Scriptures, the Word of God, that you get to know the power of God. This book is why we believe in a future resurrection. This book is why we believe in eternal life. This book is why we believe in Jesus, that he lived a perfect life, that he died a substitutionary death, that he was risen, and he is coming again. This book is why we believe that God's power isn't just enough to one day raise us from the dead to eternal life but to sustain us in this life, even when it's hard, even when it hurts, even when nothing eternally significant seems to be happening, still we keep going. Still we keep the pedal to the metal, pursuing the eternal with Jesus. We are people of this book. Bethel, let's be a 2 Corinthians 4, verses 14 through 18 people knowing that he who raised the lord jesus will raise also or will raise us also with jesus and bring us into his presence that's why we don't lose heart though our outer self is wasting away every day our inner self is being renewed and strengthened day by day for this light and momentary affliction even when it doesn't feel light or momentary, is preparing for us and working for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary and transient, but the things that are seen, unseen, are eternal. Do we believe that? 
Are we people of this book? Are we this kind of people? Do not lose heart. Bethel, by God's grace and for God's glory, let's triage life well. Let's be all in on going all out for eternity because of Jesus a resurrection day is coming. Live for that day. Amen. Father, may you take your word and plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us for your glory. Speak by your spirit, through your word, to your people, molding us and shaping us into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is at your right hand, awaiting when the Father will say, go get my children, and he will come again and receive us unto himself, that where he is, we will be also. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. May we live with eternity's values in view for your glory and in the name of your Son's name. Amen.